Father, we give you thanks for this day. We thank you for the calling to love and serve our Savior in all that we're about. We thank you especially now for the opportunity to begin this study um, about our calling to love and serve him, especially with respect to the great gift of speech. And we pray that uh, we would be those who are hearers of the word um, and doers, but particularly tonight, we pray that we would be hearers, that knowing that there's a, a critical connection between that and the stirring of our uh, lives to action, and we pray that our study would be uh, strengthen us in that great work, and we pray all of this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, um, today we begin our study of uh, a course that I'm calling Wholesome Words, um, the calling to uh, serve the Lord in the use of speech, or something to that effect. <laughs> I didn't write down the official title, but you've seen it enough times, you know roughly what it is. Um, the, um, the Bible has much to say about speech. It, uh, un not surprisingly, has much to say about speech in the wisdom literature, where there are uh, very important counsels about how to speak wisely and to consider what one has to say. Uh, but, on the other hand, uh, that subject is not neglected in the other parts of the canon, uh, in, in fact, uh, there's a good bit about speech to be found in the Pentateuch uh, for reasons that I'll try and explain later on. And uh, there is uh, an enormous amount uh, about speech in the New Testament. Um, and so we're going to try and take up a comprehensive study of that subject. Um, but tonight I want to try and give um, a uh, meta-consideration of that subject. Do you know that locution these days, meta-consideration? That it, it comes from as far back as Aristotle, but I doubt that many people who use it today are thinking of Aristotle. But uh, Aristotle wrote a number of quite remarkable works. One of them was the physics where he uh, sought to understand the way the world worked, practically. Um, but uh, he also wanted to sort of understand the first principles of the world, and in the whole scheme of things, I don't know whether it was his editor or publisher or his idea, but he decided to call that the metaphysics, and that was because it came before the physics, and that's all metaphysics means. <laughs> it means before the physics. Um, but it's come to mean uh, some kind of consideration that is foundational uh, theoretically to some course of study. Um, and uh, uh, so I speak of this then as a uh, meta-consideration of the idea of the use of language. Um, um, a kind of foundation for our study of wholesome words, the calling of Christian speech. Um, and um, I'm using language here in the broadest possible sense. I'm using the term to stand for the whole of the language event. By that I mean... Uh, both the speaker and the one spoken to is included. With respect to the speaker, it's his formulation of his ideas and then uh, speaking what he has thought. Uh, with respect to the hearer, it's the uh, physical listening, but not only listening, but understanding what has been said. And it includes, on my conception of it here, 
uh, uh, responding to what was said. That's the whole language event. Speaker and the one spoken to, uh, the inward life expressed uh, in some way, particularly in words, but we'll see it's even broader than that. Uh, It's heard or perceived by one addressed. Uh, It's understood, or at least thought to be understood, and then there's some kind of response, uh, inwardly and or verbally. Um, so that uh, you'll get misled if, if you don't have that um, much, much broader conception in mind as we speak together. And uh, as I say, I want us to take up uh, kind of the foundation of this whole subject in the Word of God Um, not looking at all the different particulars about uh, the morality or ethics or the practical use of speaking. And in particular, uh, we want to um, look at language and the image of God. We want to uh, begin at creation. Um, As as I said... um, we begin with this observation that the New Testament in particular, that is the the part of the Bible that's especially focused on um, the manifestation of the great work of redemption of Christ, uh, the New Testament demonstrates a great concern for Christian speech, uh, for our manner of speaking as both a service to and a witness to Jesus as uh, the Lord of glory. Indeed, it could be thought that the New Testament has an overly uh, uh, precise concern for the matter. Uh, You think of Matthew 12, 36, Jesus speaking here, and he says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word that they speak. And I know for some it causes their eyes to roll, for others it, it causes night tremors. Um, it, it does, on the face of it, seem to us to be at the very least hyperbolic, uh, if not um, extravagant. Um, but that gives you some indication as to why a person might think that the New Testament gives a, a good bit of consideration to this matter. Now, I... Um, Some years ago, Dr. Richard Gaffin, uh, a professor of New Testament at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia and then a professor of systematic theology, um, perhaps one of the finest Reformed exegetes of our day, and uh, I'm emphasizing the perhaps for those who aren't persuaded, I'm fully persuaded of of the the matter. some years ago, Dr. Dr. Gaffin wrote an article that uh, I think is incredibly important here, and I'm going to be uh, borrowing liberally from it. I've been fully persuaded by it. It's called Speech and the Image of God, Biblical Reflections on Language and Its Uses. I'm going to put that into the chat to everyone here and send it to you. It's a little bit hard to find, um, but uh, at least you'd have a head start on finding it. It was, it was published in a Feshgrift. That's a series of essays collected in a book to honor some uh, scholar, typically. And uh, as you might imagine, Feshgrifts are not usually bestsellers. Uh, certainly the fellow honored buys a copy and probably many more to give to all his friends and uh, but uh, the usually it's the students and admirers of the man who uh, make up the essays involved, and so there can be very mixed uh, abilities among them, and that can lead to uh, not as full an embrace of it. But uh, this Feshgrift was done in, in honor of uh, Robert Strimple, who was... Uh, professor of systematic theology of Westminster, both in the uh, East and the West. And Dr. Gaffin's essay can be found there. And I think it's an extraordinary piece of work. And I'm going to be trying to communicate to you the fruit of his labors with a few 
observations of my own. I'm not going to distinguish them. You'll be able to tell easily where it seems utterly persuasive. You'll know it's Dr. Gaffin. Where it may seem doubtful, you'll know it's probably my uh, contribution. Um, so, um, in that essay, he notes that Reformed theology, uh, in particular, um, has a vital interest in language. And it, it has a vital in interest in language because it is so fully committed to th theology being uh, simply an exposition of God's word, that God's word rules in everything. And so there's a great concern for the use of language, the proper interpretation of language, and so on. Um, and it's with that in view, then, um, in this essay, he is offering what he calls a theological meditation on scripture pertinent to language and its use. And as before in our times together, uh, any time that you have a question or comment, don't hesitate to holler out and uh, uh, get my attention and so on. Um, how do I get rid of the chat here? I want to be able to see. There we go. Um, um, and uh, we can stop and you can ask me further about what I've been trying to say. Um, well, uh, Dr. Gaffin uh, identifies at the beginning of the essay a basic dilemma for believers who are seeking to assess the function of language. And here um, he has in view uh, broadly every form of communication of ideas. By language he means all of the media of communications. And uh, here's the dilemma. It's found in two texts of Scripture. The first is Psalm 94, uh, verses 9 and 10, and the second is James 3, verses 9 and 10. Uh, wonderful. Uh, providential from uh, the point of view of creation, but serendipitous from our point of view conjunction of verse citations. So the first, Psalm 94, 9. He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who disciplines the nations, does he not rebuke? And it goes on. Uh, here we have, plainly, two rhetorical questions. And uh, the one raising the question has no doubt at the uh, answer. Of course the one who formed the eye sees. Of course the one who formed uh, the ear hears. Uh, now this brings us uh, to uh, the question of God's image. But we note further uh, that um, the point that in these rhetorical questions raised by the psalmist is clearly that our human capacities of hearing and speaking are not merely derived from God as all that is true about us. Every, everything that has to do with us is derived from God. Not merely that, but also that hearing and speaking reflect God's own divine capacities. That's what's pointedly in view in these questions. And it doesn't stretch the psalmist's point at all by continuing, does he who shaped the tongue not speak? That God preeminently uh, has the capacity to communicate, and it's that capacity that is found in creatures, creatures created in his image. Here is the truth of the matter. We exist because God exists. We know because God knows. So too we speak 
because God speaks. In other words, our capacity for language and other forms of communication are derivative of his capacity for language and communication. Our God is a speaking God. It is his nature so to do, and derivatively, it is our nature also as those created in his image. To put it another way, our linguistic functions in all that we are, in all that we do, are to be understood as the functions of a creature who is in the image and likeness of a linguistic God. In fact, uh, the, I think we should say that it's especially in his language that man reflects the divine image. For God created us for communion with him, communion particularly in communication from him and in communication to him. And he created our fellow creatures that we might have communication from our fellow creatures and communication to them. All of us, those created in God's image, uh, the triune God himself, are communicating beings. And it's at the essence of uh, the created purpose of God is to create finite creatures who can participate in that extraordinary ability. Nothing is so fundamental to who we are as created than our capacity to communicate with God, to communicate with one another. As God's image bearers, we are made to be addressed by God and in turn to address God, to see and to respond, to hear and to reply. This is true with respect to all that God is. All that we know about God was intended to be communicated to us and over and over and over and over again, the Bible speaks of how we were intended then to respond to that communication, whether the communication of God's might and power in the created order or whether in, uh, with respect to God's purposes and the unfolding of the mystery of his will that we have in special revelation. Uh, we are to see and to respond, to hear and to reply. Uh, this is uh, so above all in our relationship to him, who is our pattern and original, and out of that relationship to our relationship with others, like image bearers and image shapers. Shapers. In other words, we are created to um, understand, to hear from one another, and to that understanding, reply and respond, and in that, to enjoy a relationship together. Thus, God's image. Now, we can go further in this, in particular, by speaking of God's word. Preeminently, God's word is his representation of himself to us. Um, the, uh, that word uh, found uh, in the mouths of the prophets and so on, but particularly that word in the person of his son. God in the person of his son is originally and from all eternity, the word of God. That's what the Apostle John teaches us in John chapter 1. He is ever the word. And so we, created as we are, as image bearers, we specifically are word bearers. And we are that essentially, inveterately, 
irremediably. We we cannot help ourselves. It's at the very essence of who we are. We are born communicators. Not just some of us, but apart from grievously, deeply abnormal exceptions, all human beings are communicators. Now, admittedly, some are better skilled, they're more graceful, more effective than others, but that's not our concern here. Rather, the fundamental point is that we essentially are created for speech, for communication. In all of its uh, attendant characteristics, whether by word or whether iconic graphic representations or graphic forms, whatever the medium, uh, we are created for communication. And in fact, created to be creative in seeking out and establishing forms of communication. Not only uh, created in God's image, not only with respect to the word, but also with respect to the covenant. Our God is a covenant God. And covenant essentially, irreducibly, requires communication. Communication between the covenant head and those who are covenant keepers. This is a fundamental biblical category with respect to God and his people the category of the covenant. He is preeminently the covenant-making God. And this reality structures our image-bearing existence. It structures our existence with respect to God-given promises. The covenant is preeminently a matter of God's promises to his people. It's structured with respect to God's commands. Uh, essentially structured as to what God requires of his people. Um, It's structured with respect to God-given blessings that are revealed and God-given tasks that are set before his people. In covenant with God in particular, we are created for communication, both with him as well as with others. And recall that this is not uh, simply a matter of redemption. It's not simply a matter of dealing with the fall. Because, as we argued when we looked at the Westminster Standards, uh, the covenant of creation or the, uh, the covenant of works comes before the fall. And so all of the essential characteristics of the covenant are pre-fallen. God revealing himself as our God, what that means for us, what we should hope for in it, and what he requires of us in that covenant. And you can see this especially in the calling of God's covenant people with respect to the voice of their God. Now these instances are instances in a fallen world, uh, instances representing the redemptive covenant, but they would have been essentially true, fall or not. And so if you look at Exodus 15, at verse 26, here, if you diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your God, your healer. Now this latter part, of course, represents the reduction of a curse in a fallen world. But in a pre-fallen world, this first part, perfectly well, is said to Adam and Eve, and in fact, in place of the repudiation of a curse is put in it, do this and live um, and inherit the promise of life. So too in Exodus 19, you see see the same idea. Uh, 
that the covenant relationship is found particularly in hearing the voice of God. Now, therefore, if indeed you will hear my, obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession among all of the peoples of the earth. You are mine. This is at the heart of both our identity and furthermore, at the heart of our destiny. Who we are created in God's image, who we were created to embrace him as the word, who who we were created to be in covenant relationship for him was all meant to find its consummation in uh, his final purpose. And so our destiny is found precisely in the radical addressability of our covenant identity as God's image bearers. Um, Sorry, uh, there was an attempt at communication going on in the next room that was uh, unwelcome. (laughs) So our, our destiny is this radical addressability, our covenant identity as God's image bearers. And it's decisive for who we are in the consummation of all things and for what is to become of us. And you see this in uh, the book of Revelation uh, throughout, but I'll just draw your attention to one portion, chapter 22, beginning at 16. Jesus, the word, has sent his angel to testify to you about these things for the churches, that is to communicate to them. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let one who hears say, come. Do you see there's a conversation going on here? And let the one who is thirsty come and the one who desires to take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of the prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So there's the first text and the fullness of its implications that characterizes the Bible's teaching about us as uh, those uh, who um, communicate, those who are um, uh, speakers, who uh, use language. And let me pause there then and see if there's any question or comment or observation you'd like to make about it. Yes, Chambers. Bonnie. Bonnie. Um, this is just really amazing to me, Dave, because when I think about communication, I don't, I don't, I usually think of it as the, the person who is doing the speaking. I don't think in terms of being the one who is receiving and listening and hearing. And this is just really something wonderful to chew on and think about and, and understand. Yes, it surely is. I agree, Bonnie. It is. It's quite remarkable. Other thoughts? uh, Yes. Um, Yeah, marvelous. Uh, Thank you very much for doing this class. Um, This may uh, be premature to say so if it is. I'm wondering, since it was part of the covenant of works, before the fall, what effect, if any, uh, was corrupting upon the ability to uh, speak and to hear as God's image bearers? 
Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense, and it's about three and a half minutes away. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's what's going to create the dilemma that Dr. Gaffin has in mind. This first point sets us up for the dilemma. The second point brings it home uh, in spades. (laughs) Any other thoughts or reflections or questions or comments on all that we've done thus far. All right then, let's um, turn to the second text, now brought to juxt- in juxtaposition with uh, the passage from the Psalms. This is James chapter 3. Uh, we'll look at uh, other verses related, but focusing on uh, chapters 9 and 10. With it, that is the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Uh, Here, James is scandalized at what is obviously true um, that we use the same mouth to bring curses and blessings. Uh, Here we're confronted with a horrifying reality that something has gone terribly wrong with us Because as image bearers, we curse other image bearers. As those who have been given the extraordinary gift of language, a divine uh, uh, donation into our created nature, we use that to curse other image bearers. The very instrument that had been granted to us to honor, to upbuild, to express gratitude, this is now used to tear and destroy. And worse yet, uh, this use of language is now coupled with what is represented as praise of God, but that cannot be anything remotely like praise because it's so utterly lacking in integrity that it in fact dishonors God. To use the same mouth to curse other image bearers unwarrantedly and then ostensibly to praise God is to do a wicked thing. Here we come face up to an inescapable and undeniable reality. Sin's destructive impact upon our speech. The terrible way in which our hearts being turned away from God is subversive to the use of language its deep disruption of all our imaging capabilities, of all of our ability uh, to communicate. And the outcome of this is catastrophic in the world. Uh, James continues, verses 5 through 8. So the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. It is a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on on fire the entire course of life. And it itself is set on fire by hell. 
Here James represents the flame of the tongue that it spreads burning throughout the world was ignited in hellish opposition to God. Verse 7, For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. This is said by James about one of our most divine capacities. What a nightmare. Um, the conjunction here is just heartbreaking. It's uh, terrifying. It's um, uh, completely uh, d- distressing to see ch- such beauty and wonder brought to such a place. And James is not alone in his testimony. You see the same indictment in the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1. Here, now reflecting on uh, the course of sin in a fallen world, but reflecting on it by first thinking about how things should have been in a world before the fall. Paul speaks of sinners who, although they knew God, they didn't do something that they ought to have done. What, what is the thing that, they th- that Paul thinks of first? It's honoring God with speech. The first and most telling indictment Paul can bring against sinful mankind is that they didn't use the gift of speech properly with respect to God. They didn't honor him as God and they didn't give thanks to him. They didn't speak of him in ways that acknowledged the wonder of who he was in admiration and joy and they didn't speak to him in gratitude of all of his extraordinary gifts. Here is at the root of our sinfulness Here we have it, sinful confusion, linguistic and otherwise, that permeates permeates the entire creation. Our language here no longer functions for the honor of God and for what he has made. The human tongue, with all the potential it evokes, has ceased to be an instrument for thanksgiving for thanking God. And the results are calamitous in the world. From those two, what might seem to be simple thoughts. Uh, Dr. Gaffin put it this way. He, He said, note, the fall, human sin, doesn't result in the complete loss of the divine image but rather its radical distortion through defacement. So here, in particular, uh, the fall doesn't lead to the loss of human language capacity. It leads to a terribly distorted use of that language capacity. And in fact, he wants to warn us off a mistake here. He says, uh, we, we ought not to think that because this element of God's image continues with us, that somehow this offsets our wickedness as if there's some remnant, a a small spark of good that can lead to our admiration. Rather, on the contrary, the more wonderful the gift being distorted, the more abhorrent its distortion is. And so for this to be preserved among us, but to be used for terrible purposes, both with respect to God and with respect to creation and our fellow creatures, makes it all the worse. We'd have been better uh, having been silenced altogether than to use such a gift in such a manner. Thus, 
the dilemma. Our capacities as God's image bearers granted to us for the high privilege of his worship and service and for the good of our fellow creatures and community have turned against him and turned against others. The human tongue, with all its possibilities, and in our modern world, with capacities for communication almost beyond imagination, uh, has become an instrument of distortion, of perversion, of degrading, degrading destruction. The gift of the tongue, this God-given gift, is a gift that has been prostituted massively and thoroughly. And it should be no surprise to us, because according to our Savior, this horror has ultimately found its source in the evil one. You remember how... uh, the Israelites prided themselves as being fathers of Abraham in John chapter 8. And he said, you're not, you're, you don't have Abraham as your father at all. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so the lies, the distortion, the use of the glorious communicating capacities that creatures such as we are have is nothing other than uh, from the pit of rebellion against God and the father of lies. Uh, Notice further, uh, even as believers, we participate in this prostitution, a a prostitution in which in and of ourselves, every one of us is implicated if we are considered uh, as sinners to a greater or lesser degree in one way or another. Here, all of us fall short of the glory of God. The tongue that ought to be our glory is our shame. And that is our desperate dilemma. Um, And were this all we could say, ours would be a hopeless dilemma. For nothing we could say uh, could overcome such a terrible use of the gift of speech. Well, let me pause there for a moment. Thoughts, reflections on the second half of our dilemma, the one, the great gift of speech, uh, to then the scripture's judgment with respect to the employment of that speech uh, by the ones that God created it for. Observations, thoughts? All right, I'll press on then. Well, um, if that was all we could say, ours would be truly a hopeless dilemma. Happily, this is not the last word. Uh, there's still one word to consider. And that is, of course, uh, the word. The word who was in the beginning with God and who was God and who was uh, and, and who as such became flesh and lived among us, as John teaches us in chapter 1. The eternal word has become the gospel word, and that is good news. Jesus put it this way in John 18, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth 
listens to my voice. Now there's a new capacity for listening that is going to overcome our cursed speaking. And that is very, very good news. Everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. Here, finally, is a tongue. A tongue given to the second Adam. A tongue that speaks words of grace. Luke 4.22 A tongue that speaks words of eternal life. John 6.68 And in that declaration is so utterly compelling that it can be said of his disciples, you are already clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. John 15.3 Finally, Here is a word that meets our deepest and most desperate need. Here is a word that meets our need to be clean from sin and all of its debilitating consequences. Here is a word with a power to cleanse, a cleansing power that's strong enough to restore the image that we bear as creatures in God's image, to restore that image and bring it back to its full luster that we might glean as sons and daughters of God. It is strong enough to strip away the impurities that pollute our communications at every level and at every form. This truly is very good news. Jesus is that word. Jesus is is the image incarnate. And that not merely for his own sake. He, He didn't simply come to be a shining example of what being created in the image of God meant with respect to our capacity for language. Rather, he did it for our sake. It was God's purpose that there would be another, one who would come, that we might be conformed to his likeness so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Jesus came to speak a word that would transform transform those who heard him such that they would become brothers with him as those who use the gift of speech for God's glory and for the good of others. Among the elements displayed in this renovated and reconstituted divine image, Paul singles out three in Ephesians chapter 4, at verse 24, and to Colossians chapter 3, at verse 10. There he identifies knowledge, understood as the truth, knowledge, righteousness, and holiness in each of those verses. This is what is taking place in the renovation by the power of the Spirit that comes with the gospel. And what is striking for our subject here is how Paul goes on in these passages to expand on the qualities of this restored change. When you have one restored to truth, to righteousness and holiness, what comes about? Well, it's identified in the verses that immediately follow. It addresses their speaking and their communication. Verse 25, each one of you must put off falsehood and speak the truth to his neighbor. It would be better, hard to find a better plaque for identifying the transformation that the gospel brings. 
Paul continues in verses 29 and 31. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but as such only good for building up and fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Verse 31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. This? Is this possible for the tongue that James has described? Isn't it striking how when the mighty transformation that comes through the word of Christ is manifested in a person, that the use of the gift of language is prominent in the evidences of that transformation. What has been overcome but the terror of the tongue found in James's uh, terrible rehearsal of the sinful use of speech. It's not impossible. Not impossible for the one that has heard the truth that is in Jesus. For he has become renewed in the spirit of his mind, who has put on the new self in Christ, created in the likeness of God's image. Verse 24 of our passage. Such as these are able to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Verse 32. What an extraordinary calling for sinners. What an aspiration to have. And yet, and this is what I'm wanting to argue tonight, and then have us talk about a little bit as we close. And yet, this aspiration can only be had by those who embrace the vision that we've been talking about, who understand that human language is not ultimately a human invention, but it is God's gift, a gift reflective of his own capacities as the giver. It can only be had by those who understand that the sinful use of language is preeminently blasphemy. Do you see that? Any sinful use of language is blasphemy. It is a violation of a sacred gift given to us by God. That then helps us to see that Jesus wasn't being overly precise. He wasn't being hard-nosed or flippant. He wasn't being hyperbolic. When he talked about any careless word coming under judgment, because any careless use of such a great, glorious, magnificent gift surely is a terrible use. And it's that I want us to be persuaded of tonight as we undertake our study uh, about wholesome words, the Christian calling uh, uh, to speak uh, in faithfulness to the Lord. Well, let me stop there and leave us with a very few minutes for questions, for comments, for reflections, for discussion, anything you'd like to say or anywhere you'd like to go. I haven't put you all to sleep, I hope. We're speechless. <laughs> Oh, oh no. Oh, nice. It's very convicting, Dave. All right, Bonnie. I was going to say just what Jenny said. It's very convicting. And yet the other part of that is to be reminded of what changes the way that we use speech because in and of ourselves, in our sinful nature we will sin and we will right. fail but we are redeemed and we it does change and the fact that we can 
make progress in pursuing honoring him with what we say is is just an encouraging thing to know that we can because it can make you feel really down every time you fail thinking oh golly i did that again yeah how am i ever going to get around to this and and just i'm really excited for this study to be able to pursue understanding even more and learning because i need it so bad yeah that's a great point uh bonnie and um the uh I, I think part of what, in fact, inhibits us is we tend to inhibit us from engaging fully on this matter the way we ought, is we t- tend to think of language being a relatively trivial thing. Uh, and um, and so I'm, I'm trying to uh, set this before us, to have a seed that we need to reconsider that matter and to see how tremendously significant it is in, in, in creating the atmosphere of our inner life, our outer life, the atmosphere of our homes, uh, the atmosphere of our church. Um, the, there is nothing more powerful in terms of we created in the image of God than our use of language for the flourishing of every part of our life. Other thoughts? I hope I we we all have a great uh, debt of gratitude to Dr. Gaffin because um, it was his thinking on this that I was responding to and trying to develop and. Um, and it, it, I had for years considered this subject from the point of view of the many particular texts that address it, and I have been deeply moved by it and uh, have uh, tried to be a help to other believers to, to see it as a calling. But it, it wasn't until coming across this more comprehensive vision of it that I, I really felt like I was understanding the, the subject in its proper setting, in its proper framework. I had not um, seen that make observation you made about Romans 1 and the, the first thing Paul thinks about in terms of the, the dereliction of, of duty being not using speech right. And not glorifying God. That's powerful. That is. It is. It's very powerful. Very powerful. Other reflections? Uh, Objections? Comments? Things you you say, what about this? (laughs) Well, our our time is up. Uh, I'm at some point going to have a, 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 a s- syllabus that you'll see the course I hope to take, but I still am not uh, there yet. Um, I'm uh, unfortunately um, working more slowly than uh, otherwise these days, and uh, but uh, I, I will get that for you. But from here, what we're going to do is just work our way through a host of scripture texts that address uh, both um, ways we can err in our speaking and ways in which we can be profitable in our speaking and strategies to that end. The Bible has a good bit of practical advice for us on this uh, subject. And uh, so I think uh, we have a lot to look forward to. Anyone else want to get a word in? Well, then thank you all for participating tonight. I'm looking forward to the days ahead. Let me pray for us. Father, how wonderful is your word. It surely is a light to our path. Um, And tonight we change the imagery and in the hearing of it, we have a pattern for our own hearing and speaking and uh, the capacity to use this gift that is so precious, so 
godlike. Um, and we, we pray that uh, we might regard it rightly as uh, precious indeed and be stirred all the more to want to learn well how to employ this gift to your glory uh, to our good and to the good of others. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.